live from London. This is Monocle on Sunday with me, Georgina Godwin. Coming up on today's programme, Monocle's editorial director, Tyler Brulé, will be joining us live from the Swedish capital, Stockholm. Also ahead, my panellists Quentin Peel and Alex von Tonzelman will be here in the studio in London to round up the weekend's main stories. Plus, an update from Monocle's Hannah Lucinda Smith in Istanbul. And Andrew Muller will be reflecting on the news cycle. We learned that former US Vice President and possible Martian spy who didn't pay enough attention during the How to Act Like an Earthling lessons Mike Pence may actually have a sense of humour. That's all ahead here on Monocle on Sunday, live from London. Well, let's cross straight to Stockholm where our editorial director, Tyler Brule, is standing by. Good morning to you, Tyler. Good morning, Regina. Uh, Anybody who's read your column this week will know that you've been on the move and we're going to talk about uh, exactly where you've been in a moment. But you've ended up in Stockholm. Why? I've ended up in Stockholm for a variety of reasons. Uh, Part of it is, uh, yeah, a bit of that that moment of where we know that sort of Europe is in different phases of summer. Of course, the Swedes, uh, like many of their Nordic neighbours, Georgina, go on holiday uh, much earlier than the rest of Europe. So there's already the sense of autumn, not quite in the air, because it was a very, very warm uh, end of last week. It, but it really sort of feels a little bit like a mid-September day uh, here in Stockholm, maybe the, the temperature just around 20 degrees. But it's a nice jolt out of summer because, you know, you're in London, and, of course, there's still the bank holiday ahead. Uh, France is certainly not wrapped up its holidays, nor has Italy. But it's actually nice to come to a place as well, which just gives you a little bit of a jump start uh, on the autumn ahead. And I wonder what the uh, the mood there is, because, of course, we know that there was this awful shooting in Malmo in a, in a, in a, in a shopping mall. It looks like it was a, a gang-related attack. And, of course, that's a major issue ahead of, of uh, this month's elections. Are you getting much sense of, of concern about the elections and, indeed, of, 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 of attacks like that? Well, certainly the issue of crime and, and really at the forefront of a gang-related crime uh, up and down the country is a huge election issue. Off the back of the shootings in Malmo, as you said, we've had a lot of party leaders saying this is not going to affect the election, affect the election in terms of the tone, because it's just another attack on a series of many, which, of course, has really sort of changed the direction of Swedish politics in so many ways. Uh, I think if you look back at Sweden 10, 15 years ago, this notion that this had become one of the leading countries for gun crime in Europe, people would have would have sort of laughed this off. But now this is part of daily reality. I'm standing in a part of Stockholm right now, and I'm just surrounded by campaign posters. And, of course, many party leaders are going to have to confront uh, this issue of, of, of certainly gun crime, gang-related crime. And also, you can't, you know, you can't sort of ignore the fact that much of it has, yes, a, you know, a, a migrant uh, component to it as well. And so there is this yeah, need to have a very candid discussion in the country. Of course, many parties don't want to do that. Yeah, yeah. And, and what are you getting in terms of a sense of, of where the country will go from, from this election? Well, I think certainly one of the, the main things is that it's, it's really all open. You have to recognise Sweden as a country which uh, is, is built on coalitions. And we've had some co- coalitions migrating out of the centre more to the left. And, and one of the key issues, though, is, of course, the party, the, the Swedish Democrats, um, you know, very, very right of centre, certainly by Swedish standards uh, anyway, maybe not by US standards, 
Um, you have, of course, many other parties saying that they, they don't want to govern with them. Uh, that you know, if if the Swedish Democrats you know, manage to do well, they're not going to go into a, a coalition with them. That was certainly the, the the tone maybe two or three years ago. That has changed now. You have the likes of uh, of the moderates, for example, the moderation are saying, "Well, look at if you know," and they're kind of running neck and neck, Georgina. So you're looking at sort of 19 to 20 percent. So you have the moderates who again are, yeah, you would say sort of centrist, maybe a little bit right of center, conservative party. But again, we always have to moderate this and say that you were talking about Sweden here. Um, so Swedish right looks very different from maybe right. Um, in many other parts of the world, but they would enter potentially that they would enter into uh, a coalition government uh, with, with the Swedish Democrats, which again was something which was completely unheard of, you know, as recently as two to three years ago. Absolutely, and part of that change isn't is is the pandemic. I think. I mean, that's it, it, not just health, but it seems to have shifted the narrative in so many countries around the world. It has, and I think you know, it comes back to an issue of of people saying we need to. Swedes and need to get a grip on things. This country, of course, was seen as, you know, of course, one of the great and continues to be one of the great upholders of women's rights. Um, but now you have a situation uh, where, of course, a lot of people, uh, you know, and, and certainly people have come to Sweden out of the last migrant crisis, they go back to Iraq, uh, they go back to, to Syria, uh, and then you have a whole issue. And, and this is it's an interesting story out of this country, which has popped up again and again. All of the child brides that come back, child brides, of course, through forced marriages, which is completely in collision with everything Sweden has worked for in terms of women's rights, feminist values. So, you know, again, this is something which you know, is a huge moment of reckoning for the country. Absolutely. Uh, Tyler, you're also in the city which contains, I think, one of your personally favourite hotels in the world. <laughs> Indeed, uh, at Hem. That was also one of the reasons um, we were up here. At Hem has its, you say, sort of its press debut uh, late, later in the week. Um, so they'll be officially sort of having its, its debutante moment. It has been open for about a month now, Georgina. Very happy to say as well, anyone who has been able to get their hands on our September issue will see that we had something of a global exclusive on the property. A great collaboration, again, between uh, owner Hanet Mix uh, and Ilsa Crawford, of course, another uh, favorite from the world of design uh, at Monocle. And they've just done an amazing job. I think there's so many of us, when we go to a property, um, there's, a, there's a hotel which we, we love. And I would say one of the dreadful things that the GM can always say to you is like, oh, it's like, you know, Mr. Brulé, you know, Ms. Godwin, I'm going to, I'm going to upgrade you to one of our new rooms. You're thinking, well, I really like the old rooms, actually. <laughs> and there's always that sort of sense of horror of having this sort of, you know, uh, you know, and cringe because room really is there's nothing like the case here. They've um, taken over a series of villas down the block um, or across the this lovely courtyard that they have, and there's just there's no sense of interruption. It's just it feels like these new buildings have been part of the same fabric for for absolute centuries. And yet the, the thing was gutted from, from top to bottom. But it looks like, of course, it's been standing there for, for generations. Yeah, just looking at the spread in the magazine, the pictures are absolutely gorgeous. We've also got another magazine coming out uh, this week. It's Confect. Indeed, Confect uh, also is going to be hitting newsstands. Certainly on this side of the Atlantic, our side of the Atlantic, uh, from Thursday, it might find its way to newsstands and subscribers. 
letterboxes a little bit earlier. This is edition number eight. Like Georgina, where did the two years go? Because we've been thinking about the lead up to this coming out. Uh, and now it's, um, we're already coming up to our second anniversary for the magazine. And again, just a fantastic celebration of autumn, but not too much. Uh, you'll see on the cover for those people who are still in Greece uh, or, or in Portugal and, and still feel that they've got another six or, or seven weeks of summer ahead of them. It doesn't feel too wintry just yet. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, you've been having wonderful summer in Spain. Tell us more. Yes. Georgina, I was going to ask you, have you been to Galicia? I have not, but uh, just by, after reading your column, it made me want to rush there immediately. Yeah, no, I hope, hopefully we, we fire things uh, up. But again, a corner of Europe, uh, of course, I think we've all heard of Galicia, um, but have many of us been to it? Probably not. Um, and you think about the cities. Well, certainly if you want to, you know, many people sort of also know Santiago de Compostela, but do they associate it with the region? Maybe not. Um, and that was my starting point uh, for what was just an, uh, an absolutely exceptional four-day trip to a part of Europe which feels, yes, it feels like Spain on one side, but it's so lush and you have it just, you know, butting up against the Atlantic. And, and at, a, at a time before forest fires as well, it was just felt so verdant um, and beautiful. And then just being exposed to a series of, of Spanish cities that we've heard of, but I think few of us have actually been to. Mm. Uh, you, you write about th- th- this in your column, and I wonder how many other tourists were there? Uh, that, that is, they're sort of, yeah, they're, they're kind of conspicuous uh, by their absence to call them. And this is an amazing thing to go to. I mean, Santiago is one thing, because, of course, people are there. They're doing the Camino. They're doing the, the pilgrimage. So there you have um, Christians from Korea, and you've got people who want to find themselves from Oregon uh, and, and large you know, groups. So Santiago is, is, is certainly something which is separate, I would say, from uh, the, the rest of the region. But you know, we went into these like, you know, small villages, but even, even big cities, you know, so A Coruña. So A Coruña is a city. We, you know, people might have seen it pop up time for time, from time to time, people who follow the fashion industry, people who follow the share price. Of Inditex, of course, the, the parent company of Zara, Massimo Dutti, and, and other brands, you're certainly one of the wealthiest families in Europe. You know, they're headquartered in La Coruña. But, you know, this is a city of well, probably half a million people, but you, you really walk from end to end, Georgina, and you don't hear, there's no English, there's no Portuguese, <laughs> there's no French. I, this is really a properly Spanish corner of Europe. All right, it sounds it sounds wonderful, and as I say, people should uh, absolutely check out the weekend edition email because you've got a great a great piece in there. Now, Tyler, when you head back to Zurich, uh, will you be popping into our pop up? Well, that's um, this is one of the great things about getting in and out of uh, the country um, a little bit more than off, uh, well more than regular, and certainly this time of year. So yes. Um, People who've seen the newsletter, uh, people who've seen the issue, we opened a pop-up store at Zurich Airport uh, two weeks ago. So it's the first move, Georgina, uh, into a European aviation space in retail. Uh, and it's a fantastic little space. It's out in front of Hermes uh, when you go to the A-gates in Zurich, if people are familiar with it. And it's a collection of, on, on one side, all of the model classics. So our porter bags, uh, and of course, our collaborations with various brands. But it's also a place where we wanted to bring in a little bit more Swiss craft as well. So we're working with a variety of different brands. And 
they're really like the sellout item. They're called Trousers, who make beautiful wooden toys in Switzerland. And you can find those many toy shops uh, up and down the country. But um, we decided to put them in the airport. And I can say that now there's a three-week waiting list to get wooden goats. <laughs> Extraordinary. Tyler, just uh, quickly before we go, what's in store this week? Uh, this week is uh, really gearing up uh, two weeks of production to go for a big October issue, uh, of course, which is heading out to press. Another new book coming out, Georgina. We can't talk about it just yet. But a little bit in that same world as The Companion, uh, which, of course, is a special edition we brought out for summer. This is, yeah, somewhat in the pocketbook world, but I don't want to give too much away about it just yet. Exciting stuff. Watch this space. Tyler, thank you very much for, for speaking to us. Thanks, and Regina. Bon voyage. Uh, that was our editorial director, Tyler Brule, in Stockholm. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. Get inspired with Monocle's September issue as you head back to work and put those dreams cooked up in the summer sun into action. Our business pages whisk you from an entrepreneurial academy for would-be founders in Mexico to the medical startup scene of France. We also look at the expansion of Stockholm's Ethem Hotel, tour three smart media HQs built with ambition, and meet the architects returning to Tunis to put their stamp on a city and protect its modernist buildings. Elsewhere, we meet the Indonesian president, and we travel throughout Ukraine, five months on from Russia's invasion. We report on the stories of its people as they pass through their daily routines, as well as fighting a war at the same time. We're fighting for every citizens, and it's a big tragedy for our hometown, for our country. I'm a former boxer, and one saying, no fight, no win. And that's why we're still fighting. Read their stories and much more besides in the September issue of Monocle magazine, available to order today, or you can subscribe online and get access to our digital editions at monocle.com. Monocle on Sunday. I'm Georgina Godwin and I'm joined in our Midori House studio now in London by Quentin Peel, Associate Fellow with the European Programme at Chatham House and the historian, broadcaster, author and screenwriter Alex von Tonselman. Good morning to you both. Good morning. Hi. Uh, we are reporting today in our headlines that... Uh, Vladimir Zelensky, who, of course, the president of Ukraine, is calling for Ukrainians to be vigilant ahead of Wednesday's celebrations, which will mark 31 years of independence from Soviet rule. And, of course, uh, August 24th is also six months since Russia invaded Ukraine. Uh, there isn't a day that goes past without another many breaking news stories about Ukraine. Have we just got sick of them, though? Alex, is there kind, some kind of war fatigue going on? I mean, to a certain extent, I think it's inevitable. Not that people don't care. Um, I think a lot of people care very deeply about what's happening. But that, you know, there's always the case with these very long-running um, events that interest is going to sort of, you know, ebb and flow a little bit in that sort of thing. And I do think for a lot of people in um, the rest of Europe at the moment, they are, you know, currently facing certainly in the UK a cost-of-living crisis and so forth, which of course is not at all unconnected to what's happened in Ukraine and energy prices and the result of that. But I suppose there has been a shift, certainly in Britain, towards sort of more domestic stories. But on the other hand, um, I do think, you know, this uh, 
relating to those stories, and so the fact that Ukraine is so strongly related, really, to what's going on in the rest of Europe, is going to keep bringing attention back to it. And of course, you know, around this six-month point, I think is a kind of time to really look and assess where we are, which is actually rather frightening. Where are we, Quentin? In a very unpleasant place, I think. We're into a starting a long and grinding war of attrition, but with real dangerous flare-up points. So the, the real concern at the moment is obviously this nuclear power station at Zaporizhia, um, which uh, the Russians control but don't run. And uh, the question is, um, are they going to launch military attacks from it, which will invite a response and therefore endanger nuclear facilities? You know, a sort of mini Chernobyl, mini Chernobyl, maxi Chernobyl, Mm. which would be incredibly scaring. So we've got um, Antonio Gutierrez, the UN Secretary General, and um, Erdogan, the, the Turkish president, both apparently seeming to try and negotiate some way out of this. Um, but so, so you've got, if you like, this backdrop of, oh, my God, this is going to go on forever. And at the same time, these terribly dangerous flare-ups, which could lead to it a great deterioration. Mm. And we're also seeing uh, just news uh, just just in, actually, uh, this happened on on Saturday evening. The daughter of an ultra-nationalist Russian uh, has been killed in a suspected car bomb. Now, that actually happened in Moscow. Does that suggest that Ukrainians are taking the fight to Russia? Well, I mean, if it was Ukrainians who did it, yes, it does. Or it certainly suggests that somebody does. I mean, it seems like the the story seems to be that quite possibly the bomb was meant for him, for Alexander Dugin, who is a close ally of Putin and kind of ultra-nationalist, um, you know, has been described as a sort of Russian fascist, basically, um, and has really, you know, is thought to have really pushed that foreign policy that Putin has been pursuing. I mean, you know, it seems like probably the daughter was not the intended target, but quite dramatic. I mean, this bomb sort of completely blew up the car um, and all of this. And I mean, that does imply that certainly there's somebody in Moscow who's very capable of striking at the heart of the regime. So, I mean, you know, you certainly think Putin is going to be pretty, pretty worried about what's exactly going on there. And doesn't it fit in a a bit of a pattern that, in fact, Ukraine does seem to have, with these attacks on Crimea as well, on airfields in Crimea, behind Russian lines, actually getting rather more successful at stirring things up on the Russian side? And whether it was Ukraine or not, I mean, because the other thing, in a way, we've been waiting for and watching for and yet hasn't really happened is divisions emerging on the Russian side. And if there would be divisions on the Russian side, it's possible that they, the, the nastiness would have been precisely on the nationalist side, sort of, you know, Putin's too weak or he's got it completely wrong or whatever, rather than he's too strong. So I think that it's, it, watch this space. The, the divisions on the Russian side are very... Very important. This war is not going to end, fundamentally, unless Putin goes. And I mean, I think you, you make a, a very interesting point that, that we tend to forget that that not all of Russia supports him and that there are many, many, many people there that don't. But I think particularly in the media, there seems to be like a blanket blame on Russia and Russians. But of course, that's not necessarily the case. No, but it it hasn't been able to emerge or come out in Russia. I mean, I, to think two things. Let's 
let's be honest, there is a remarkably high level of support as far as one can see, particularly among older Russians, Russians who uh, found the collapse of the Soviet Union still something to regret. Um, and, and they see a return, if you like, of imperial Russia, which they're quite attracted by. But there is a very real younger um, community in Russia who are appalled by what's happening, but certainly can't speak out. And a lot have been voting with their feet. They've been getting out of the country to the Baltic Republics, to Georgia, to indeed Armenia. Um, and Russia has been suffering, I think, a real brain drain. But none of these things will have a very immediate effect. And I think one of the... Uh, one of the... Um, calculations that Putin made was that he could ride any backlash in Russia much more easily than the Western countries could ride the backlash there. So precisely this problem that we're facing in the West now of the combined crisis of energy prices, of supply crises, of food prices going up, um, is there going to be much more of a backlash in the democratic West than there is in the un fundamentally undemocratic Russia? And I'd add to that, I mean, I think, you know, as a historian who's looked at places like Cuba a lot, when you put sanctions on a country, what you do really is massively increase support for the regime. I mean, that's inevitable. And I'm not criticising that that had to be done at this point. But there is an inevitable, you know, that I think there was a genuine huge groundswell of support for Putin um, after the sanctions went on with the war. But the longer this thing grinds on... Does that effect last? That's probably the interesting question. Now, in Cuba, of course, it has. Mm. Um, will it here? Well, yeah. It's a difficult balance. Well, looking looking at, at, at Britain, of course, all of these problems, as, as you point out, absolutely clear and present uh, right now. We're living through it. Should Parliament be recalled, Quentin? It seems like the two leadership contenders are just concentrating on campaigning. They're not governing. Our Prime Minister has been on holiday, it would appear, for the last six weeks. Uh, who's, who's leading? And should, should we actually have them in Parliament right now? I, I think we probably should. I don't think we have a government at all. I mean, I'm not sure we had a government when Boris Johnson was in Number 10 Downing Street. <laughs> but having said that, um, it, it really is a sort of vacuum. And I think people who are more and more angst-ridden and concerned about the way things are going are probably just baffled and appalled by this Conservative leadership race, um, which the Conservative Party doesn't appear to want. Look at the polls, which suggest that Boris Johnson would be the most popular candidate to, to remain leader. Um, and it, so it, it, it's, a, it's a contest between fundamentally two not very popular people who are going to face the most enormous economic cost of living challenge and popularity challenge as soon as they come to power. They're not going to be very popular and they're going to be really struggling, I think. It seems that it's been carrying on this conservative leadership contest in a sort of parallel universe where they can argue about things like changing around university terms so that everybody can have Oxbridge interviews earlier or, you know, wars on woke and this kind of thing. And, you know, we're in a situation with probably the most widely predicted recession in history about to really crunch on us. Energy prices absolutely off the scale in terms, you know, really serious cost of living crisis, supply shortages, all of these things, you know, which are really building to a very, very major crisis in this country. I think, you know, it's hard to overstate actually how serious that is. And I mean, it just feels like they're sort of mucking about. I mean, it's absurd. I don't think I've ever really 
seen a situation like this, I mean, I'm afraid I would rather agree agree with Quentin's aside that Boris Johnson never felt much like he was in a sort of leadership position. But the idea that this is some sort of caretaker administration that he's presiding over is just demonstrably untrue. No, There's no caretaking happening. Mm. Quentin, you were talking about how the, the party itself, the Conservatives, don't appear to really want this. And of course, what's happening is that they seem to be destroying the party from within. And I wonder how uh, Rishi Sunak can even think that he may be in a future cabinet when he's using words like uh, morally, whatever it was, that he, he, he accused Liz Truss of, of, you know, shirking her moral duty and so on. Can you then go and serve for, for someone once you've said these things about your own party and frankly for, for a situation that you are responsible for? Yeah, I think that's the party is tearing itself apart in before our eyes and uh, in fact you, you've got an extraordinary situation where it's now looking increasingly likely that it's a sort of shoe-in for Liz Truss and yet the, the sort of the party heavyweights are terrified that she will actually be a dreadful prime minister um, and she's not had a very good record track record of the various jobs she's had. I mean the foreign office she's presiding over is in a shambles um, and so I think they're really worried that they're undermining themselves precisely by having yet another leadership battle within the Conservative Party. Mm. And we've seen it, in fact, where um, a couple of weeks ago, I think the figures are in one of the Sunday papers today, uh, Truss was clearly actually looking as if she'd be a more popular Prime Minister than Keir Starmer of the Labour Party. Well, that has shifted in the last two to three weeks and suddenly she's running behind and Keir Starmer has had actually quite a good time in saying you've got to focus on the cost of living crisis, you've got to focus on energy. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean if if uh, Sunak were to win, surely he would be a much better candidate to take on Starmer. Well, I mean, he would neutralise from a political point of view, he would neutralise some of Starmer's advantages in that he sounds sensible and, you know, he's able to, I mean, speak with some gravitas, which we've all forgotten, of course, during this campaign where he's spoken with very little gravitas. But actually, he, he is capable, at least, of summoning up a tone of voice that sounds like a grown-up, um, which I know is a low bar, but this is actually rather a rarity in British politics at the moment. Um, but on the other hand, I just don't think he's in with a chance at all because it's the, you know, the vote base for this is the Conservative membership who appear to prefer trust who I'm afraid really comes across I mean you know it's again I, I, I struggle not to be rather rude about how she comes across but really not very intelligent um did um, you read Matthew Paris yesterday? <laughs> I did. What a fantastic description of her. I will try and find it I while you're talking. I think it was something like, it was about her, you know, sort of huge ambition balanced on a political pinhead, wasn't it? <laughs> or something like that. I mean, you know, it was, I mean, spot on. Um, and, you know, you sort of... I think I have to say I'm slightly bemused that Sunak hasn't actually just dropped out because at the moment he seems to be sort of humiliating himself with these awful statements about various things, you know, trying to sort of dig in more and more to sort of mad culture war policies that I suppose he thinks will work with the base. And he's just going further and further behind. It's not working. So, I mean, I have to say at this point, if I were him, I'd just pull the plug and concede and, you know, stop the suffering really and just get on with it. Um, do you think that would be the right thing to do, Quentin? Well, I think that he's probably... He feels that... If the Tories just came up with yet another sort of coronation, it would really damage even more the fact that they, you know, coronation of a rather weak new 
crowned head, um, who, after all, is being described by great, um, you know, substantial figures of the past. Ken Clark came out over over the weekend, I think, describing Liz Truss's tax cuts as nonsense and simplistic, and more than a touch of Argentina or Venezuela about <laughs> oh them. God. I mean, you know, we're, we're suddenly looking as if we're in the third world again. Absolutely. Now, I mean, we all have jobs. We're lucky, although, frankly, they're in the media, so they pay worse than nothing. <laughs> but, uh, but even people who are earning, we are in for one hell of an economic shock, aren't we? Well, yes. I mean, you know, food prices have already gone up very substantially. Energy prices have already gone up and we know they're going to go up an awful lot more. And I mean, I think this is a scary position where actually pretty much everybody's going to feel this. I mean, these price rises are huge that are happening. And, you know, that's something where even sort of people who are generally fairly comfortable, reasonably well off, are absolutely going to notice if they're paying £4,000 a year on energy bills. I mean, that is enormous, let alone the huge numbers of people who simply cannot afford that. So what happens, Quentin, when 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 people cannot eat? <laughs> um, you have to hugely increase the support blanket for the, you know those sort of be whether it's states provided support or um, you know things like food banks and so on. There's absolutely no question, and uh, uh, I think that's what's completely missing from this leadership campaign that we've been talking about: the realization that in fact it's uh, this is a, a major social crisis that we're facing, and not just economic figures about words about recession this is this is going to affect every human family every person out there Quentin and Alex thank you please do stay with me we'll uh, we'll come back to you a little bit later on but now here's what else we're keeping an eye on today President Vladimir Zelensky has urged Ukrainians to be vigilant ahead of Wednesday's celebrations to mark 31 years of independence from Soviet rule as fresh blasts hit Crimea and a missile wounded 12 civilians near a nuclear power plant. Zelensky said Ukrainians must not allow Moscow to spread despondency and fear ahead of the August 24th events, which also comes six months after Russia began its full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Japan is considering the deployment of 1,000 long-range cruise missiles to boost its counter-attack capability against China, local media reported today. The missiles would be existing arms modified to extend their range from 100 kilometres to 1,000, uh, said the paper, citing government sources. The arms, launched by ships or aircraft, would be stationed mainly around the southern Nansai Islands and capable of reaching the coastal areas of North Korea and China. And more than 1,900 workers at Britain's biggest container port are due to start eight days of strike action today, which their union and shipping companies warn could seriously affect trade and supply chains. The staff at Felixstowe on the east coast of England are taking industrial action in a dispute over pay, becoming the latest workers to strike in Britain as unions demand higher wages for members facing a cost-of-living crisis. And that's your Monocle 24 News. And it's time now to get a roundup of stories making headlines in Turkey. Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith, is on the line. Good morning to you, Hannah. Good morning. We've just been talking about the economy here in Britain, which, of course, is in a disastrous state. But I'm afraid the same can be said of Turkey. Yeah, absolutely. And in fact, even worse. So uh, the latest inflation figures here in Turkey show year-on-year inflation at 79.6%. Now, those are 
official figures. When you talk to independent economists, they say, actually, uh, the real rate is far higher. And that's borne out just by the experience of living here and going to the supermarket, um, you know, seeing the prices there rise. Uh, on a daily basis. Now, part of the reason why inflation is so high here is because President Erdogan is pursuing a really unorthodox economic policy. Almost every economist uh, in the world will say that if you want to cut inflation, you have to raise interest rates. Now, what President Erdogan says is exactly the opposite. He's been overruling the central bank for four years now. Every time the technocrats have tried to raise the base rate, um, he's either been sacking them putting pressure on them and forcing them to to keep cutting it. And that happened again this week on Thursday. The base rate was cut by another 100 uh, points. Uh, and of course, that had an immediate effect on the lira. Actually, not as, as drastic as might have been expected, but it did fall uh, against the dollar. And you know, as a result of that, we can expect to see inflation increasing even more. Mm. Uh, Hannah, I have a couple of panellists with me. You've probably heard on the programme, uh, Alex von Tonselman and uh, Quentin Peel. And we were talking earlier about Erdogan and Russia. Quentin, you, you had a question about what, what is he actually trying to achieve there? Yes, absolutely. I mean, it's fascinating that Erdogan seems to be very much pushing himself forward as a potential uh, negotiator of some sort of peaceful solution. Is that driven in part? Is it not just tactical, but driven because of his economic uh, crisis, that he really needs good deals out of Russia? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if we take a sort of uh, generous view of it, you know, Turkey is in this position where it can act as the mediator between Ukraine and Russia because it it has good relations uh, with both sides for for different reasons. And in a broader sense, you know, Turkey actually even predating Erdogan has always tried to position itself as this mediator country, you know, between whether that's between the the Islamic world and Israel, uh, between the West and Russia. Um, But now increasingly, uh, you know, we are seeing pretty, pretty blatantly, um, you know, the fact that what Turkey benefits from is is Russian uh, inflow of Russian money into Turkey. Turkey hasn't joined with Western countries in placing sanctions on Russia or on Russian individuals. That's meant that, uh, you know, a number of oligarchs have moved assets, in fact, often moved themselves to Turkey. Um, But also, you know, we're seeing increasingly the Russian state making investments in Turkey as well. There was a really interesting leaked document um, which came just before uh, the Sochi talks between Erdogan and Putin on August the 5th, uh, which suggested that you know, the Russian state is offering to invest uh, in Turkish infrastructure, including things like you know, oil refineries. That would be a possible way you know, for Russia to perhaps you know, bring its crude into Turkey to get refined and then manage to kind of disguise the fact that it is Russian and keep selling it onto European markets, for example. Um, but what's really interesting is that where exactly that investment is flowing. So uh, a lot of it is um, flowing into Turkish treasury bonds. Um, Also, when uh, looking at uh, Turkish exports to Russia, they've increased, I think, fivefold um, in the first month of this year compared to last, a huge increase. Um, And you Part of Turkish policy is that, uh, you know, exporters who are um, getting paid 
in foreign currency then have to uh, convert some of that to lira. Now that obviously uh, then boosts the central reserves in in, in Turkish central reserves and it helps stabilize the lira. So there's all kinds of financial alchemy going on here. But I think it is you know really beyond doubt that you know part of Erdogan's game plan here is is to use Russia to keep the Turkish economy propped up, at least until elections, which are going to be held at some point in the next 10 months. Mm. Uh, Hannah, talking about uh, investment in infrastructure, I see that Istanbul City Council is bringing back a, a long neglected ferry port. Absolutely. And this is this is dear to my heart because it's actually in my neighbourhood. So this is the Moda Iskelesi, the Moda port. It's a historic building built in 1915 uh, on the Asian side of Istanbul. Uh, and for years it was, you know, a normal part of Istanbul's sea transport infrastructure. But it's been out of use uh, for the best part of a decade. It's just been standing empty. Um, it, yeah, absolutely nothing going on. A really, really beautiful building. And Istanbul City Council, which since 2019 has been under control of the opposition, the mayor Ekrem Mamolu is a member of the uh, CHP, the main opposition party. He's uh, brought in a policy to really expand sea transport in Istanbul and also to link it up with other parts of the transport infrastructure. Um, so, you know, already you know, travelling by passenger ferry in Istanbul was a huge part of the Istanbul experience. There's about 42 million journeys made uh, on those passenger ferries every year. Um, but Imam Olu's uh, strategy is to really, really expand that. So on Friday night, he was there opening up the Moda port again for use. Um, initially, it's going to be used for sea taxes, which is another uh, new development that he's brought in. These are kind of, I guess, semi-private transport. Up to 10 people can take one of these sea taxes on bespoke journeys between any ports in Istanbul. It runs 24 hours a day. Um, so obviously, you know, far preferable to kind of hopping in a taxi and you know, trying to fight your way through the road traffic, which is, um, you know, notoriously absolutely terrible here. Mm. Finally, uh We've seen footage of this uh, very stoned little bear cub. <laughs> Will you tell us more about this? Yeah, it's really hard not to feel sorry for this bear cub. So this is in Turkey's Black Sea region. Um, it's a region uh, known for honey production and particularly for a type of honey known as dilibal, mad honey. So this is produced when bees uh, collect their pollen from a certain type of rhododendrons. And what they're doing when they do that is they're taking on something called uh, gryanotoxins. Um, That then becomes a part of the honey that they're producing. And this has a really hallucinogenic effect. It makes your blood pressure drop. It makes you start seeing things. It can actually be very, very dangerous if you have too much. You know, for humans, you don't want to take more than a couple of uh, teaspoons of it because it can cause your blood pressure to drop really dangerously low. And that's what happened to this bear. So this this video came out uh, last week of this bear lying in the back of a pickup truck. It had been found by forest rangers uh, close to, to the city of Duzje. And... Yeah, I mean, if you've ever seen anyone sort of um, perhaps experiencing hallucinogenic effects, you can see almost the same kind of effects in this bear. It's sort of, you know, gasping for breath and looks really disorientated. I'd say the bear was fine. You know, the, the rangers kind of took care of it. It came back to itself. It, you know, it's it, it's absolutely fine. But it's, um, yeah, it, it, the question is, you know, how much did it eat? It probably sort of came across a hive and, 
ate the whole lot, which is clearly going to have really severe effects. Well, I'm glad to hear it's okay now. Probably just a mad case of the munchies, though. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Hannah, thank you very much indeed. That was our Istanbul correspondent, Hannah Lucinda-Smith. And this is Monocle on Sunday. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday, brought to you in association with Spain. Spain has been a leading travel destination for so long that it's easy to assume it's a known quantity. Yet it's a country that has an inexhaustible capacity to surprise, a place of many wonders for people of all tastes and interests. Wherever you find yourself in Spain, you won't be far from an expression of the country's deep commitment to its culture, and it's never been easier to soak up its music, art, literature and traditions. In Spain, art is present at every turn, and culture's taken seriously. Museums, galleries and cinemas are cherished parts of almost every town and city. Great sculptures prowl the streets and stand watch over the beaches. Vast museums house priceless works by Goya, Velázquez and El Greco. Alongside giants like Picasso, Miro and Dali, new artists are nurtured in galleries that serve their cities with cutting-edge contemporary art. And then there's the music. There's far more to Spain than castanets and flamenco. Spaniards know how to throw a party. Some of them last all summer. With a festival for almost any taste, just book your tickets and get stuck in. Everything you're dreaming of this weekend in Spain this summer. Rediscover Spain and reimagine it. Spain, spreading sunshine on Monocle on Sunday on Monocle 24. with Monocle on Sunday. I'm Georgina Godwin and still with me, Quentin Peel from Chatham House and the historian Alex von Tonzelman. Uh, we uh, were talking about Turkey and the uh, hallucinogenics uh, that this poor little bear took. And of course, uh, that was a one-off for him, but but in many people uh, is an addiction. <laughs> and I just Well, you wonder... don't know he might be back for more. Well, that, I mean... That's true. Oh my God. It's the beginning of a, a steep slide for the, for the bear cut. I have a whole new respect for But I wonder about your own addictions now. I'm not talking about uh, your drug use or or, or any of those. But but, but, but more along the lines of of bad habits. Well, I discovered this week that uh, I have a lot of bad habits when I drive. I've been driving for rather more than 50 years and uh, one does get into bad habits. And I was done a couple of weeks ago for speeding at 24 miles an hour in a 20 mile an hour zone. Mm. Now, one of my bad habits is that I tend to regard speed limits as something that is a little bit flexible. You know, ah, well, an extra 10%, you'll get away with it. And now I know better. (laughs) So I am going to learn all sorts of things that I have been lectured for years on by my backseat driver, that is to say my wife, like (laughs) turning towards somebody when I'm driving when I'm also talking to them and looking at somebody in the back seat, perhaps, <laughs> or fiddling around with the radio when one's in the middle of traffic trying to get something. And you really do have to learn uh, when you're driving a lethal weapon, which is what I would call a motor car, that actually you've got to think of other people all the time and you've got to forget about those bad habits. Yeah, absolutely. It was very good. I spent three and a half hours on a sort of equivalent of Zoom call with eight other speed delinquents <laughs> learning uh, about 
actually the problems of speeding, even by a couple of miles an hour mm. over the speed limit. You know, I actually had to do one of those courses too. I caught, I think, doing 34 and 30, uh, 30 region through through uh, Blackpool with my ancient mother in the car. <laughs> it was just, um, and they took me in for... I actually had to go there and sort of drive with an instructor in the car. But the backstory to that is that um, I got my driver's licence at 16, as you could, in Zimbabwe and, and wanted to hold on to my Zimbabwean licence uh, but in order to do so, it meant I would have to take the British test again. And I knew I would never pass it. So I just... <laughs> um, and and so when I went on this test, I learnt all sorts of things that I had never known. I, mean, I realised I had been... You know, the, the, the end of speed limit sign on a motorway. I just thought that meant all bets are off. Do what you like. <laughs> Didn't realise it meant 70, I think, or whatever it is. I've learned that whenever there are streetlights, that means, unless there is other another sign overriding it, whenever there are streetlights, you're in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. So Good even heavens. if you're on a dual carriageway, if there are streetlights, you're in a 30-mile-an-hour zone. And that isn't a recent thing. That has been the law for 87 years. <laughs> and yet... And yeah, I mean, I suppose if we read the highway code, we'd know, right? Um, Presumably, yes. Do you have bad habits, Alex? Oh, so many. I mean, you know, it's one of these things when you're asked on the radio, what are your bad habits? And it's like a job interview. You know, I think I'm just too much of a perfectionist. <laughs> I mean, no, I do, though. And I, I mean, I was thinking one that I have, which I'm afraid I'm guilty of so much, and I bet some of your listeners are, is uh, screen time at night. Mm. Is, you know, people say to get good sleep, you should, you know, know, go and have a, and maybe read a book and sort of let the kind of light pollution die down before you sleep nope i'm a terrible person there with my ipad reading until late and then of course awake in the middle of the night reading again on it which probably is related and for some reason i seem completely unable to break this habit it's very difficult though isn't it quentin are you guilty of that yes not 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 actually the screen time i do turn off um if i can early and you know but i turn it on again probably too soon in the morning and one of the things that actually i'm locked into a, a sort of negative um, spiral at the moment is finding it very difficult to sleep during this heat wave mm. so i wake up rather early in the morning and i turn on the radio and think oh well i'll fall asleep listening to the radio probably turn on get it on my mobile phone or whatever and uh, I then find that the news is so depressing <laughs> that actually I'm sort of shocked into awful wakefulness worrying about the state of the world. And it really does feel like that doesn't it at the moment Alex? I'm afraid it does a bit. I mean I, I definitely am guilty of the same and I'm, I've never been a good sleeper. I'm the sort of person who does quite frequently sort of wake up in the middle of the night and then sort of stay awake for a bit. Um, absolutely not helped by exactly that by getting on. I mean I can't put the radio on because I think my husband would then be quite furious that I was waking him up as well. Um, and that's why I think one resorts to the screen. You know, if you are sharing a bedroom, then uh, you you know, you can't really put the light on to read a book or put the radio on or so on uh, without causing some annoyance. Um, so, yes, I tend to kind of, I'm afraid, get the little screen out. And then, of course, yes, immediately sort of various apocalyptic scenarios pre present themselves, which absolutely removes any possibility of getting back to sleep. Well, I, totally, I totally agree. And, and checking Twitter and things in the middle of the night is just yeah, I a countless I try not to do Twitter because I think that really would wake me up. I mean, I, what I try to do is read, you know, that's a good time to read The New Yorker or, you know, some sort of rather more thoughtful, long-form things, but it still doesn't help. It's still completely apocalyptic. Mm. Do you have domestic bad habits, Quentin? Um, 
Uh, no, not helping with watering the garden. <laughs> um, uh, not not doing my ironing. My wife has for years told me she loves ironing. I don't believe a word of it, but she insists I don't iron my own shirts. I had to learn to for a while when I was based in Berlin, and actually it was a year before my wife came out to join me because we still had children in school in the UK. And I then learned to iron my shirts, and I thought, what a nightmare it is. Well, some people, though, really love ironing. They do. I mean, I've sort of recently started. This is a completely bizarre fetish, um, but I recently I never ironed anything for years, and then recently I sort of I went to stay in this hotel and they had really nice linen and these wonderful crisp pillowcases, and I thought I should like myself enough to iron my pillowcases. You know, this should actually be a treat that I allow myself. So there I've been ironing my pillowcases, and I don't mind it actually because I have an audio book on. And pillowcases are quite easy because they're pretty much a flat square you know, mm. or rectangle, to be more accurate. <laughs> shirts are quite challenging, in my opinion. Um, I certainly, I just don't wear shirts, therefore yeah. ironing them is <laughs> an easy way around it. I like, I like myself to pay someone else to do my ironing. Even better. Yes, say. even better. <laughs> perhaps if we could do that for all our bad habits, pay somebody else to do the bad habits. Yeah. Oh, not do the bad habits. <laughs> Take care of the problem. Contract yes. it out. I think it might, might work very well. Uh, well, good, good luck with, with conquering or indeed staying. With your with your habits, uh, Quentin Peel and Alex von Tunzelman. This is Monocle on Sunday. And finally, on today's programme, it's time to join Monocle's contributing editor Andrew Muller for a roundup of the week's stranger news stories. We learned this week that everything in the United Kingdom is basically fine, that there are no real problems at all, no drought or double-digit inflation or skyrocketing energy bills or general cost-of-living crisis or war at barely one remove with Russia or anything like that. And if there is, it's no big deal. We learned this by judging from the behaviour of the UK's clearly serenely unconcerned Prime Minister Boris Johnson, who, apparently insufficiently refreshed by one holiday in Slovenia, come on, let's have some Balkan folk music, something accordion-y, Christ alive, what a din, embarked on another holiday, this one in Greece. Seamless. We learned other things from Johnson's gallivanting. We learned that the British media and the public it serves have lost none of their blind, furious, purple-templed, vein-throbbing rage at the thought of their elected representatives enjoying life even slightly, which is why Prime Ministers are so very often obliged to spend such time off as they get, pretending to be absolutely overjoyed that they're freezing half to death on a rain-swept Cornish promontory and not sloshing back an agreeable Montepulciano on the sun-splashed balcony of a Tuscan villa. But we learned, or rather conceded, that on this occasion the grimly grudge-toting denizens of these angry islands do have half a point, specifically that Boris Johnson could probably bestir himself to do some actual governing right now, as if we're being honest, things aren't going brilliantly, plus his schedule is shortly to free up dramatically by dint of him not being Prime Minister anymore, unless one assumes that he intends to dedicate himself with tireless up-all-hours diligence to the concern concerns of the voters of his constituency of Uxbridge and South Ryslip. <coughs> if Johnson happens to be listening, it's in West London. 
We learned meanwhile that Johnson's increasingly inevitable successor, Foreign Secretary Liz Truss, does not think much better of Britain's people than Britain's people tend to of their politicians. We learned from the leak of a recording from circa 2019 that Truss believes her fellow citizens to be, and we paraphrase somewhat for clarity, a woebegone sack of shiftless bone-idle layabouts who would, by and large, recoil from an offer of generously paid work as a mattress tester. Because this has been a historical fact for decades. Yeah. Essentially, it's partly a sort of mindset and attitude thing. Yeah, it's working culture, basically. But if we have learned anything about Liz Truss, Liberal Democrat turned Conservative, Republican turned Monarchist, Remainer turned Brexiter, person who once pronounced it scone but now pronounces it scone, person who once put the cream on the scone before the jam but now puts the jam on the scone before the cream. What? I'm not sure. Yeah, what? Yeah, I, don't, I, huh? I, I don't know that one. Really? No, no. Yeah, sure. These monologues aren't delivered under oath. We have also learned that Truss is a politician of commendably flexible ideological underpinnings and were therefore rather anticipating from her a screeching handbrake turn into ecstatic raptures at the positively Stakhanovite heroics of the British worker. We learned that we were to be disappointed. You suggested in that leaked recording that British workers weren't working hard enough. Do you believe that? Well, what I believe is that we need more skills in our country, we need more capital investment in our country, we need more opportunity in our country. And that our, is our what, British workers working that is now. what I would deliver as Prime Minister. Look, we need to help more people get into work. We have a number of people across the country who are currently economically inactive. Uh, one more chance. Do you think British people don't work hard enough? I've already been clear that what I want to see is more opportunity across this country. Anyway. Contemplating the Atlantic's other shore in expectation of bleak comic relief, we learned that former US Vice President and possible Martian spy who didn't pay enough attention during the How to Act Like an Earthling lessons Mike Pence may actually have a sense of humour. Ex-Veep Pence floated the richly amusing possibility that he might at some point bowl along to the House Committee investigating the events of January 6th, 2021, during which his former boss, President Benito Cartman, neglected to try terrifically hard not to get him lynched. We learned that, however, that Vice President Pence, or Lieutenant Colonel Zorg of the Mars Intelligence Agency, whichever, has also paid somewhat lackadaisical attention to American history. And let's have a sound effect of a blackboard eraser being angrily flung at a diffident student by an enraged tutor. Ah! Ah, memories. For we learned when we checked that loads of, well, several current or former presidents and vice presidents have testified on Capitol Hill, including Presidents Abraham Lincoln, Woodrow Wilson, Gerald Ford, Teddy Roosevelt and William Taft, and Vice President Shyla Colfax. So it would not be unprecedented. It would not even be un-vice-presidented.
unprecedented. But we learned that Pence, or Zorg, whoever, had better be quick, for we learned that Congresswoman Liz Cheney, daughter herself of a previous Republican vice president, will not be around to chair the January 6th committee much longer, having lost the Wyoming Republican primary ahead of November's midterms to some Trumpist headbanger, specifically this one. Joe Biden is the largest or the most destructive human trafficker in our history. Yes, we played cuckoo noises behind that. We are that childish. So we learned that we have lived long enough to see not only Liz Cheney, who would have been generally regarded not so long ago as a fire-breathing paleo-conservative, resemble by comparison to her party at large a bastion of principle and voice of reason. Two years ago, I won this primary with 73% of the vote. I could easily have done the same again. The path was clear, but it would have required that I go along with President Trump's lie about the 2020 election. It would have required that I enable his ongoing efforts to unravel our democratic system and attack the foundations of our republic. That was a path I could not and would not take. But also her dad. In our nation's 246 year history, there has never been an individual who is a greater threat to our republic than Donald Trump. He tried to steal the last election using lies and violence to keep himself in power after the voters had rejected him. He is a coward. A real man wouldn't lie to his supporters. He lost his election and he lost big. I know it, he knows it, and deep down, I think most Republicans know it. Welcome to the resistance, Mr. Vice President. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. Thank you very much there to Andrew. Well, it's just about time for us to go. But before we do, I want to find out what you, your plans are for the rest of the day, Quentin. Um, <laughs> doing the earning. <laughs> 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 um, we're we're um, trying to look for a, a downsized house in London. So our lives are constantly wandering around parts of London that we don't know quite well enough. Oh, what fun that is. Uh, can I recommend the area I live in? I'll tell you about why it's so perfect in a moment. <laughs> Alice, what's your... Uh... Oh, I'm going to be wandering around London too. In fact, a quite desirable area. I'm going to Dalston this afternoon for a tea party. Oh, oh that sounds lovely. <laughs> I am going to be walking my dog. Uh, and in fact, more than walking her, I'm going to take her swimming, I think, on the Vale of Health in, in Hampstead. Uh, she's very much a, a big swimming dog, so I think oh, that's lovely. going to be a lot of fun. Uh, listen, many, many thanks to, to both of you for coming on. Uh, that is uh, Alex von Tunzelman and Quentin Peel. And that's it for today's edition of Monocle on Sunday. Thanks to our producers, Rhys James and Nora Hull. Of course, we also heard from Tyler Brule on the programme and Andrew Muller and Hannah Lucinda-Smith in Istanbul. Monocle on Sunday will return at the same time next week. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.